Hi, my name is Kanya, and welcome to my very first podcast on book reviews. I say podcast on book reviews specifically because there have definitely been other attempts, um, but I'm really confident about this one. To give a little bit of background before I jump into the book review, I used to be an avid reader, as in I would read entire books in a single day, and that was mostly when I was in middle school and a little bit when I was in high school. But I stopped reading for pleasure around the time I started college. And last year, I started my first year of law school. Currently, I am in my second year of law school. But law school is very difficult and takes a lot of time. But you'll go crazy if you don't find something non-law related to do for yourself. So this year, as part of my 2023 resolution, I wanted to go back to my roots and begin reading for pleasure again. And usually, like many people, I'm sure, once I finish a piece of media, like a movie, a show, or a book, I want to tell people about it and talk about every single detail. But obviously, not everyone partakes in the same type of media as me. So I wanted to start a podcast where I could scratch that itch of talking in depth about a piece of media I recently finished and enjoyed or maybe didn't enjoy but had a lot of thoughts on. Um, And also... This podcast is really more of a way to hold myself accountable to my resolution and keep tracks of the books that I read. So with all that background and history information out the way, let's begin. Hi again, my name is Kanya and welcome to my podcast where I read books and review them. Sometimes I do want to do like film and like TV show reviews too because I'm definitely not always going to be reading. Like I said, I'm in law school. It's a very demanding like, you know, environment. So sometimes maybe I'll just like review an episode of a show that I watched. But today we are doing a book review and I will be reviewing A Murder at Balmoral by Chris McGeorge. This is a book that I picked up at a small cute little book cafe in Phoenix. It was, I think they called it a book bar and it was so cute. They had like, it was like a little coffee shop and a bookstore all in one. I'd never been to a place like that before. Um. Like, usually I go to libraries, so maybe, like, all bookstores are like that, and I just didn't know. But anyway, I was in search of a murder mystery specifically because I had just watched Glass Onion, which I loved. So I really wanted to, like, keep that momentum of murder mystery going. And honestly, the reason I picked this book was because it said murder on the cover. So Chris McGeorge, if that was your intention with naming your book, a murder at Balmoral. You certainly succeeded, at least with me. Um, but a murder at Balmoral, which from this point, I'm just going to be calling it Balmoral, is about a royal family from this hypothetical universe. To provide some background, um, Chris, the author, notes at the beginning of the reading, In 1936, King Edward VIII brought to the establishment his intentions to marry a young American divorcee. This request would be rejected, and this rejection would lead to Edward VIII's abdication of the throne. But what if this had never happened? What if Edward had allowed the establishment to find him a wife who suited their purposes? While this present royal family carry the name Windsor and occupy the same residences, they are born of this divergent timeline. So in this timeline that we live in, like in the real world, we have King Charles, and previously before she died, we had Queen Elizabeth. And we have Prince Harry, Prince William, you know, Kate Middleton, Meghan Markle, etc., all of that. But in this story, in this book, it takes place in a world where a different member of their ancestral line took the throne. So instead of Elizabeth or Charles, we have King Eric.
Um, and now that we have that background, I'll give a brief blurb of the book before diving into a more detailed summary. And then a thorough review of the characters, the plot, and the writing. There will be spoilers, so this is the final warning. This is a mystery book. Don't listen to this if you have not yet read the book or if you um, have any intentions of reading it in the future. If you want to know whether or not I recommend it without hearing any spoilers, you can skip to the end. Um, but anyway, the blurb of this book goes like this. And at this point, I'm just reading the back what um, the author provided. So the royal family has gathered at their Scottish retreat, Balmoral Castle, for a traditional Christmas. As a blizzard gathers outside and a delicious dinner is prepared, the family circles up for a holiday toast. King Eric has something momentous to say. In fact, he is about to name his successor. But as he raises a glass of his favorite whiskey, he drops dead. The king has been poisoned. Someone in the family must have done it, and each one of them had opportunity and motive. Eric's beloved head chef, Jonathan, must now play detective. Why would one of the king's own family members want to kill him? And how did they do it? What happens in the castle usually stays in the castle, but this secret might be too big for these battlements. John is determined to expose the truth, even if it puts him in the killer's crosshairs and shakes the entire monarchy to its core. So that was the blurb. And it sounds interesting enough, which is why I picked up the book in the first place. Like, the title drew me in because I was looking for a very specific genre. And then the blurb on the back was like, yes, I need to get this. I want to know what happens to the king. Um, and then before I dive into the more in-depth summary, I do want to give a quick rundown of the characters. At this point, I'm only going to be introducing them. So I'm not going to tell you, like, how I feel about them or anything. I'm just going to let you know who's who. That way, when I give the summary, like, you're not like, who's that? Who's that? Anyway, um, after I introduce the characters, then I'll give the summary. And then I'll review the characters and review the summary. So the characters in this story in Balmoral, the first character is King Eric Windsor. Um, he's 85 years old. He, the book... Um, in the beginning of the book, they do provide you with a character list, which is really helpful. Um, so they describe him as popular, youthful, and whimsical. He does love puzzles, and um, it's a very important part of the story. And he also loves Christmas. He inherited the role when he was 10, but he was crowned at first opportunity when he was 18, which I think is also another point that's important. The book doesn't call it important, but I thought it was important. Um, and then after King Eric, we have the Princess Royal Marjorie Windsor Newbomber. So Marjorie is King Eric's wife, but she's not the queen. Because usually when a king marries a woman, that woman becomes the queen. But in this case, the king specifically chose not to make Marjorie queen, which is something that is revealed later in the book. Um, and I'll give my thoughts on the justification of that. But just know that Marjorie is the queen, but she's not referred to as a queen. She's referred to as a princess, specifically the princess royal. But to the rest of the world, she's just Princess Marjorie. The same way, like, Prince Philip was Prince Philip. But, I mean, in that situation, it's different because a queen doesn't make a man a, a king. But a king always makes a woman a queen. In this case, he specifically didn't want her to be queen. Anyway, the king and the queen, or the princess, have two daughters. They're twins. The firstborn daughter, Princess Emmeline, born three minutes earlier. Um, 
she is theoretically first in line for the throne but in this hypothetical universe the king does have a say on who can inherit the throne it could be a firstborn child a secondborn child or it could even be a grandchild that he thinks is more worthy so even though princess emmeline was born first she's actually um she is theoretically in line for the throne but she would only get that position if the king died without naming a successor so yeah and um princess emmeline is about 40 years old i think they're 39 about to turn 40 in three weeks she's not married she has no kids but she does have a boyfriend and the boyfriend wasn't invited to this family only um christmas dinner however her twin sister princess maude younger by three minutes she does have a husband and two sons and her husband and two sons were invited to this christmas dinner and princess maude is described as the people's princess she's the favorite of the two daughters um and everyone loves her and maybe even the king loves her a little bit more than the other princess and so there is also prince david who is the king's younger brother and he's um he's a little bit like he definitely gives racist vibes and he's he's like it's said that he's an assaulter whether or not that's like sexual assault isn't like explicitly told but it is implied but it is explicitly told that he is a physical assaulter as in he's like harmed people before punched them specifically he punched women so prince david is not a good person and he doesn't like that his brother doesn't stick up for him when the media talks about how he's an assaulter even though he is an assaulter i guess he wants the king to like tell people hey even though he's an assaulter don't bring it up and then we have thomas crockley this is princess maude's husband um he definitely reminded me of like an elon musk type like just or maybe not elon musk i don't know who specifically i'm looking for or donald trump's daughter's husband i don't know their names but he's like i he definitely married into this family because they're the royal family it's very hard to tell if he loves his wife or even his own sons um and he doesn't really have that deep of a connection with them and he's a businessman first and foremost he prioritizes his business and he started this company that's basically uber but specifically for rich people so uber for rich people um and so throughout the story he talks about how his business is doing so well and he's so proud of it he's making a lot of money but in reality he um he he's in, he's bankrupt like his company is not really doing all that well and so that's um mod's husband thomas crockley and then you have mod's sons prince matthew who's 18 and prince matthew i have a lot to say about him when i go into the character reviews but just know that he's the king's favorite so remember how i said that in this theoretical universe it doesn't matter if you're the firstborn the king can appoint whoever he wants to take his place so prince matthew is a favorite and everyone thinks that the king is going to give him the position of king after he dies and then there's prince martin who's 13 years old and he's just a little kid i don't really have a lot to say about him He's a little kid, but he does play a very important part in the story, especially towards the end. So when it comes time for the reviews, I'll talk about him a little bit more. But for right now, he's just like a, he's a child. And then there is Tony Speck. 
And all I'll say about Tony Speck right now is that he's the keen security guard. And specifically, he's the only security guard that's working today on Christmas Day. And he's very into his job, takes it very seriously, um, and he doesn't like the chef. And then there's Darcy Theragold, who's the Keen's private secretary. And I I know I have to wait for the reviews, but I don't like Darcy. I don't like her. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit more in depth later, but I don't like her character. I don't like the role that she plays. And... She, um, that's all you need to know about her is she is the king's secretary. And, um, she does play a major role, but I hate that role. And then finally, we have Jonathan Alain, who is the king's private chef. He is from Barbados. He has a black mother and a white father. Something else I will talk about more in depth later. But basically, Jonathan, ha or he goes by John, he has no family of his own. He is so completely devoted to the royal family. It almost borders on like a cult-like fascination. Like he doesn't like outside of cooking and um, taking care of his kitchen, he lives and breathes for the royal family, specifically the king. So that's really his whole thing. Like he is devoted to the royal family to the point where it's Christmas and the rest of the kitchen staff are at home with their families. But he's like, no, I want to spend my Christmas, you know, cooking for the royal family and slaving away in the kitchen. And so those are all of the characters in this story, all of the important characters. Every, anyway, they do mention a few others and a few others do appear, but they're not really relevant and they barely have any speaking lines. So um, it's not really anything of note. But now that we have our characters, let's get into the details of this book. So it is told in the point of view of the royal chef, John. It's told in third person, but we see things from his point of view. We go through the day with him. Everywhere he goes, we are. When he leaves the royal family, we leave the royal family. Um, anything he doesn't know, we don't, we don't know. So John, like I said, lives and breathes for the royal family, which ultimately becomes his like flaw, like his downfall. But it is Christmas Day, and the king wanted to gather his family and just his family together at their retreat so that they could celebrate the holiday alone. Um, so in this house in the middle of nowhere, or not house, this castle in the middle of nowhere, there are the eight family members and two staff. The chef, John, and the security guard, Tony Speck. The chef, John, has to cook Christmas dinner all by himself. So the book starts with him going into detail about how taxing that is. And throughout, you get the sense that something's wrong with him. He's clearly old because I think it's implied that he's in his 70s. But also, it seems like he may just have like a kind of sickness that's weighing him down. Some illness that the audience doesn't really know yet, but will soon be exposed to. The security guard, meanwhile, is roaming the grounds of the castle, making sure there are no intruders. He shows John this tablet that has blinking red dots on it. The dots are um, everyone that is currently on the property, and it captures their heat signatures. So um, on the tablet, there are 10, 10 blinking red dots for the 10 people that are currently at the castle. Um, and that way, the guard spec will know if there are any intruders, which is what led John to believe if there's going to be, like, when the murder happens, because of this tablet with the blinking red dot that Speck shows him, keep that in mind, 
um, he thinks that the murder has to be one of the family members because no one else could be on the property because he saw the tablet that John showed him and there is there was no other heat signatures. So if somebody was to do a killing, it had to be someone in the family. Anyway, John prepares for dinner. He serves three courses and the family enjoys the food. Um, and But there's this really sad moment where John describes standing outside the dining room and he's been running on his feet all day because he's been cooking since the morning and it's currently 12.30 in the afternoon. He hasn't had anything to eat. He hasn't had time to sit down. And um, along with cooking like this giant dinner all by himself, he also has to run errands for the members of the family. Because remember, there's only two staff on this entire property. Usually they have maids and everything. But because the king wanted it, wanted it to be family only, these two staff are basically like they have to play every job. So John, like he describes this scene where he's standing outside the dining room. He's hungry, but he's unable to eat or do anything in case the family needs him because they have this bell. And if they ring the bell, he has to go and see what it is that they need. So he's not allowed to go anywhere. He literally just has to stand outside the door, hearing these people like talk um, amongst people that they love and eating this delicious dinner that he cooked but can't eat. Um, the king's younger brother, David, Throughout the book, he constantly refers to John, who's just a chef, as the butler. So David is always referring to John as the butler. He never even calls John by his name. He calls him butler. Um, and though John repeats over and over he's just, just a chef, it doesn't help his case that he literally acts like the butler for the family. Like I said, like he runs errands for everybody, like anything that they can't do for themselves, which is a lot of stuff. Um, he's the one that has to do it for them. And Tony Speck, the security guard, doesn't really help him because, like I said, Speck takes his job very seriously. So he's a security guard. He's supposed to watch out for threats, and that's all he does. He doesn't do anything else. He doesn't help John prepare the meals. He doesn't help John run errands. Like He's like, I'm here to make sure nobody tries to kill this family, and that's all I'm going to do. Anyway, the family has dinner, and then they go into the family room to open Christmas gifts. Um, the king, as I mentioned before, loves puzzles, so somebody gets him a puzzle box. And then when he asks, who got me this puzzle box, he, um, nobody in the family answers who it was that did it. And when the king is eventually murdered, John's first thought is that the person who got him the puzzle box is the person who poisoned him. And so anyway, the king got a puzzle box for Christmas, and so the rest of the family goes about their day, and the king spends the rest of the afternoon figuring out how this puzzle box works, and eventually he cracks it. And when he cracks it, the box opens up, and again, it's a lot like Glass Onion. Like, you know, in the beginning of Glass Onion, if you've seen the movie, they have to crack this code to get the invitation, and once they crack it, the box, like, completely opens up. So that's what happens in this book. He cracks the box, the puzzle, and it opens up. But instead of an invitation, it smells like a Christmas dinner. So he can smell, I think it was potatoes and garlic. And there's also a tiny little figure inside. And the figure is like a little cane. And it says God saves their cane on it. So he's super excited that he cracked this box. I think it took him like maybe two hours to crack it. And another thing of note is that on the puzzle box, like on the outside of it, the word 
interregnum was written and that basically means between reigns which is very significant um the little boy martin the youngest in the family asks the king what that meant and the king explained it to him that interregnum means between reigns very suspicious that um somebody would get him a puzzle box that talks about you know the period between when the current royal the current head royal dies before the new one is put in charge so that's why john was thinking that whoever got him that puzzle box killed him anyway the king was excited that he solved the mystery so he wants to finally make his christmas toast and everyone john the the chef goes around filling everybody's cups because the king loves this particular brand of whiskey so um John goes around filling everyone's cups with the whiskey. Even the little boy, Martin, gets some whiskey because it's a special day and his mom said it was okay. Um, so everyone gets a cup and everyone raises their glass of whiskey, but only the king drinks the whiskey. And before he can finish his speech, he dies. There's a lot of reactions from the family. Shock, disbelief, laughter, tears screams a lot of screams they experience a lot of emotions and it's hard to decipher who actually killed the king based on these early reactions i think i read this chapter like a few times because i was trying to figure out like who's the most suspicious like marjorie the king's wife was like no he's not dead and she was laughing she's like he's just playing a joke and then eventually once she realizes that he's dead she's like oh and then she starts like crying and so i immediately ruled her out because i feel like that reaction was way too genuine um and if it wasn't if she was like playing a game well like good for her she deserved to get away with it but i thought it was like a super genuine reaction and then the daughters are crying um the prince david the king's younger brother i also ruled him out because even though he was incredibly suspicious I felt like his reaction was like they were talking about his face went white like he wouldn't like he was like disturbed so i feel like i ruled out marjorie and david because even though they probably had the most to gain from killing the king their reactions were too genuine that even if they did it they were like upset that they did it so i didn't think that they were the killers and as much as the book tried to like point you in a direction that they're the killers, I was like, you're you're not gonna get me. I know, I know they didn't do it. Um. Anyway, the family elects John to play detective because eventually they all realize like the king drank the whiskey and he died. So they put two and two get two together and they realize that the whiskey was what was used to poison John. And they realized that someone in the room had to have murdered the king. Um, the whiskey that John poured out was a freshly opened bottle. He literally opened it in front of the entire family. So they were able to immediately rule out that John didn't do it because he opened the bottle. And he had left the bottle in that room all day. Which means that someone else, because after John opened that bottle, he didn't return to that room again. So it wasn't him. He was in the kitchen cooking. Um, but every other member of the family, every single member of the family at one point was alone in that room with the bottle, which means that every single one of them had opportunity to poison the whiskey. Um, 
So they elected John to figure out which one of them did it because they thought he was like a third party. He's not a member of the family. He doesn't really have anything to gain by killing the king. He was never alone with the whiskey, so he wouldn't have had opportunity to poison it anyway. Um, immediately, David and Marjorie, the prince's younger brother and um, the king's wife, are against John being detective. And this is where the racism really starts to come out because John is this biracial black man, and I'm assuming he appears black because although black people, black biracial people can appear more lighter skinned and closer to white, I'm assuming in this sense that John is like a very black man. So Marjorie and Davis start to show their true colors and are calling John all types of names and are super against the idea of him like interrogating them because there's this moment where they switch places. John went from being the servant to now he's like, they have to listen to him. And so obviously these two old racist white people don't want to listen to the black man. Anyway, um, the only other people that hadn't been in the room with the whiskey were John and Speck. Matthew, who is the 18-year-old son of the princess, makes a guess that maybe there was someone in the house unaccounted for, somebody who must have been in that room that none of them saw, somebody who's on the property that they hadn't met yet, like maybe a secret agent or something. But John says that that's unlikely because, remember, Speck had shown him that tablet with all the red dots on it, with the heat signatures. Um, so it was impossible for anybody else to be on the property because of those heat signatures. If somebody else was on the property, they would know. So there was no one else in the house but them. The only suspects were the family members, John and Speck. John was ruled out because he was cooking, and Speck was ruled out because he was monitoring the ground, so he wasn't even inside the house at all. Um, so John ends up accepting the part of detective, but he clearly has no way to know how. He tries to contact Speck multiple times because he and Speck each have walkie-talkies as the only staff on the property. And one thing I really liked about this is you can feel like I really liked how it was written. Like, you can feel his desperation every time he tries to, like, contact Speck and Speck isn't answering. You can feel the anxiety. And even me, I was like, oh, my God, he's just a chef. Speck, where are you? Like, I really like how that was written. Because it was, John was stressed out and you could feel that stress. And in a sense, you were stressed out, too. Because now this poor black man, he's 77 years old. He's old. He's sick. He's left with this evil racist white family and one of them is a killer and he has to figure out which one of them did it like those are very anxious you know settings um so he's trying to contact speck speck is nowhere to be found and obviously speck as a trained secret service agent would have a lot more expertise as to how to figure out which one of these people killed him but they're not able to find speck and also it's notable that there's a blizzard outside i should have mentioned that in the beginning but there's like a crazy snowstorm happening outside so nobody else can get on the property so john's immediate reactions are that like speck is lost out in the snow and he can't contact anybody through the walkie-talkies or anything eventually um john as his first act of playing detective first he gives Maud a notebook to write down what each of the family members were doing throughout the day and um so after that notebook was filled out, that's when he, he, they were able to see that each member of the family had been alone with the whiskey at one point. 
So after he realized that, he interrogated each member of the family alone. They go into a separate room and he questions them. So I am kind of speed running this summary and skipping out on a lot of details because I realized it would make a lot more sense to provide those details later with my review. So I'm, I am not going to be providing um, everything from this point on, but um, I, I am still going to be providing a lot of details, just not as much. Anyway, John interrogates each member of the family alone and Although by the end of the interrogations, he doesn't figure out who the killer is. He does figure out that um, each member of the family had a secret and a motive. So, for example, um, Thomas Crockley, he, um, this is Princess Maud's husband. So he is like the business guy that none of them liked. His secret was that, um, so in this universe, there's a show called The Monarch which is our their version of the crown. So the, the, the monarch has been getting a lot of details eerily correct to the point where the royal family thought that there was a spy amongst them. And Thomas's secret basically is that he is the spy and the king figured this out. So that's his motive. Like the king figured out he was feeding secrets to this television company in order to make more money because his business was going bankrupt. Um, but, um, John basically thought like, you know, I don't think Thomas did it. So he didn't know for sure who did it, but each of them had a secret. Each of them had a motive. And at one point, as he heads back to talk to the rest of the family all together, um, he sees somebody on the stairs and this part was super scary because I was kind of reading this at night. So like, Obviously, even if something isn't scary, I feel like when you read it at night, if it has even a tiny bit of suspense, like emotions are more riled up because it's the middle of the night. It was 1 a.m. So I was a little bit scared reading this scene. But there was a figure standing at the top of the stairs and he's in a coat and the hood covers his head. So John can't see who the person is, but this the coat belonged to Thomas Crockley. So John assumed that it was Crockley. And so he starts asking him, what are you doing out here? You should be back in the room because he he wanted all of them to stay in one place. But Thomas doesn't listen and he actually starts running towards John and he ends up running out of the castle. And John, like an idiot, chases after him into the blizzard. And he's like yelling at him. He's like, get back here. And at this point, he starts to believe that Thomas Crockley is a killer. He definitely had, you know, motive. Like the king found out he was selling secrets to a television company. And he had opportunity as he was alone with the whiskey at some point. But Thomas is just like running out. He's not listening to him. And eventually, John loses track of where Thomas is. But he does run into another person. And then... In the middle of the book, not even the middle, I think it's somewhere towards like closer to the end, sort of the middle. This is when we're finally introduced to Daisy, the keen secretary. And I have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to keep it for the review section and keep it out of the summary. But basically, he runs into the keen secretary, Daisy, and he tells Daisy everything that's happening, that the keen is dead. One of the family members killed him. Um, And so John, for a moment, has like this brief sense of relief he's like finally i'm just a chef i don't have to do this anymore someone like more capable more suitable for the job is going to take action and yeah davy daisy definitely takes action um so she goes to the room where their family is and 
Oh, also, before she goes to the room where the family is, actually, they go up to the room where Thomas Crockley's room is, and they check Thomas Crockley's room, and he's in there sleeping, which means the person that was running towards John wasn't Thomas Crockley. It was somebody else, which is suspicious because at this point, John was in possession of the tablet with the red dots on it. He could see where everybody in the house was. So he could see that there were still the same number of dots, but there was somebody running through the house who wasn't Thomas Crockley and who didn't have a red dot. So in his mind, John is like, this is a ghost. But obviously we know it's not a ghost. This isn't a supernatural novel. Um, but now he has to figure out like what's going on on top of that. So anyway, he and Daisy go back to the family room to talk to the family. And Daisy completely backstabs him. Like, Daisy gathers her family and is like, John is an insane person. He's crazy. He, he's just a chef. Why do you guys have him playing detective? And so the family at first is like, John was doing a good job. We just wanted a third person who could figure out this situation for us. And then Daisy's like, but he's just a chef. He's been playing with you guys. You guys just lost a king. Your father, your husband, your grandfather. Obviously, you're in a very emotional state of mind right now. And he was manipulating you. John was manipulating you. So Daisy basically like brainwashes the family into turning against John. And before she had gotten there, the family was super reliant on John. Like, they had really grown to trust him and respect him. But then as soon as Daisy shows up and tells the family that John is just a chef who's about to lose his job for manipulating the remaining members of the royal family, all of them are like, yeah, you're right, Daisy. This is so stupid. I can't believe we thought the king was murdered. He definitely only died of natural causes. So Daisy um sends the rest of the family to their room so they could go to bed because at this point it was literally midnight so he sends the family to their rooms um and he basically tells john that he's fired um because even whether or not she believes the king was murdered she doesn't care because she has a role to play which is keeping the peace and her idea of keeping the peace is by keeping the family from being hysterical you know they're like none of you guys killed this man, he only died of natural causes. So, so um, John is left feeling betrayed that none of the family members took his side. They all went back to their rooms. Um, but he still isn't satisfied, obviously, because a man doesn't, like, foam at the mouth and, like, clutch his throat from natural causes. Like, clearly something happened to him. So he continues to snoop. And this is where I'm going to start fast forwarding through the summary so I can get to the review. But he continues to snoop and ends up finding Thomas dead. Remember, Thomas, Princess Maud's husband, who John thought was running through the house, but was actually in his room. It turns out he had somehow left his room and now he's in the wine cellar dead. And initially, John... It does look like the scene of a suicide that um, Thomas Crockley allegedly killed the king and then was so, like, felt so much guilt by it that he committed suicide after. Because the place he was kneeling, he was kneeling next to the shelf that had a secret compartment. And when you open the compartment, there are poison bottles inside. Um, so John was like, oh my gosh, so... Thomas is the killer. That's it, right? 
But when he moves Thomas, he sees that Thomas was actually stabbed in the back. And it wasn't a suicide. It was just made to look like a suicide. So John is like, I don't care what Daisy says. So he ends up bringing the whole family back together because now he finally has his answer. He knows who the killer is and he's ready to reveal the killer. And I did skip over a few details that I kind of, I think I do want to go back and talk about. So before um, John found Thomas dead, he went to Maud's room to speak with Maud. I remember Maud is Thomas's wife. So he goes to Maud's room to speak with Maud because Maud had gone to check in on Thomas and Thomas wasn't in his room. And John had told Maud, oh, he's just outside smoking probably. And little did they know that at that point, Thomas was dead in the wine cellar. So Maud is talking to, um, to John and basically confides in John and says, I hate being a princess. I hate being a real family. I wish I had spoken up for you, but sometimes it's just so scary, you know. I wish I was a normal girl. And she tells John about this story of a girl named Poppy that she was in love with when she was a little kid. And her parents didn't like the fact that she was in love with a girl. So they basically faked Poppy's death. And then um, a few years after the fake death, Maud ended up finding Poppy who had moved on. She had her own life now. She had her own daughter and everything. Um, so Maud was super upset that her family had betrayed her like that because she really loved poppy and the only reason she married thomas is because she she just like she didn't really care who she married at that point she just married him um so she confided in in john telling him this and this is when i grew really suspicious i was like girl you basically just confessed to murder um like you have that's like probably the strongest motive of anybody you know um and so john leaves the room and then he ends up going to the king's study where he runs into Matthew, Maud's eldest son. And Matthew is in the king's room, looking over the king's papers. Um, and so this is obviously really suspicious because, like, why are you in the king's room and why are you going through his stuff? And John is like, obviously he asks him, why are you here? Why are you going through his stuff? And so Matthew, doesn't he doesn't really provide an adequate answer, but he provides an answer that John is satisfied with temporarily. So he leaves it as, as it is, and that's when he goes about snooping, and that's when he end up he found um, that's when he found Thomas dead in the wine cellar, and so that's basically the beginning of the end. So the family goes back to the room, and John says, "I know who the killer is." Are you ready for the spoiler? For the major spoiler, as in. Who was the murderer? And plot twist, there were multiple killers. Um, so the first person to have died, the king. First, John says Matthew killed the king. Matthew, as in Maud's son, as in the 18-year-old um prince, as in the king's favorite and the person who everyone thought the king was going to name as king. So John is like, Yes, Matthew killed the king, but why? And so at first, Matthew was like, no, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. And I was like, what? Of course he didn't. That doesn't make any sense. He had the least motive. And something I didn't mention, 
Throughout this story, Matthew was probably on John's side the most. Like, he was basically backup detective. He was John's number one supporter. And that's something he even told John. He's like, why would you accuse me of murder when I've been supporting you all this time? And so John is like, then tell me I'm wrong. You didn't do it, did you? And then Matthew was like, fine. And so we get the story. And I hate so much how it unravels. Because up until this point, everything had been happening very slowly. You get a lot of details thrown at you, but it's not overwhelming. But then when we get to the point of revealing who the killer is, all of a sudden, they're just throwing everything at you. I think like the revelation of the killer, killers, happened in like a span of like two to three chapters, which was insane. And I think there was one chapter where you just get like, he was a killer. No, I was a killer. No. We were all the killer. And it's just so funny because what are you talking about? Like, why are you throwing all of this at me right now? Um, And it did make me a little bit excited. But then having, like, time to sit with it and think about how it all happened, it was, like, it wasn't the best writing. But anyway, Matthew confesses to murder. However, he says he did not murder the king. He murdered, wait for it, his father. Yes. Matthew murdered Thomas Crockley, his own father. And here's a story behind it. So the king obviously loved Matthew. Matthew was his favorite, and he wanted Matthew to be king after him. So he tested Matthew, basically. He took Matthew to the wine cellar, and he showed Matthew the poisons behind the wine cellar because he wanted to see if Matthew would like actually kill him in order to move up on the throne faster. And he told Matthew, like, I'm sick, I'm dying, um, I want to kill myself to um, ease myself of this pain, but I don't have the strength to do it, so can you do it? And at first, Matthew was going to do it. He wanted to help his grandfather, like, ease the pain of illness. But then he realized he couldn't do it. He loved his grandfather too much. So when the king ended up dying, he was super shocked. He was like, how could this happen? And then... Um, and then, so he didn't kill the king, but then he killed his father, and I won't go into detail about why he killed his father, because honestly, it doesn't matter what I say, it doesn't matter how different or how often the author explained it, it just didn't make sense to me. Like, his father wasn't a good person, but to literally stab him in the back and frame him for murder is insane. Like, this kid was supposed to be, like, the good guy in the story. Like, literally every single chapter, you're like, oh, Matthew is the king's favorite. Matthew is the people's favorite. Matthew is a good guy. Matthew is nice to the black man chef, John. Like, Matthew is supposed to be this, like, he's supposed to be, like, the thought-worthy person. I don't even know if I said that word right. But he's supposed to be, like, this, like, thoughtful, nice, gentle, kind person. For him to kill his father, and not even just kill his father, but stab his father in the back was insane to me. Especially since the reasoning wasn't even that justified. I think it was, like, his father came upon the poisons, and so he just did it um, so that his father wouldn't expose the secrets. And... I will talk about that more in the review because I don't this is still the summary and I know I'm definitely diving into review territory, but I didn't like I didn't ugh anyway. So yeah, Matthew killed his father, but who killed the king? 
At first, everyone was like, well, Matthew killed his father. Obviously, he killed the king, too. But then Maud, Princess Maud, Matthew's mother, and the dead Thomas's wife comes out and says, yes, it was me. I killed the king. So now we have this family of four, right? We have Princess Maud. We have we had Thomas, who is now dead. And then we have the eldest son, who is a murderer, killed his father. The youngest son, who has yet to make himself really, like, known. Um, so, like, it's insane, isn't it? Like, it's, it's insane. Like, Maud is a killer. She killed her own father. Keep in mind, too, Maud is a people's princess, right? Like, Everyone talks about, oh, she's the favorite. Everyone loves her a lot more than Emmeline. I thought Emmeline was a killer. She had so much motive. Like, oh, you're, you're, like, her nephew was going to be put on the throne before her when she's literally first in line. Not to mention, even though she's, like, really nice and, like, perfect and intelligent, nobody likes her. Even though there's nothing wrong with her, nobody likes her. Nobody likes her boyfriend. Her boyfriend wasn't allowed to come to Christmas dinner. And everyone likes her twin sister over her. Like, I feel like Emmeline had so much motive. And I think, obviously, that's what the author was trying to do. Like, give you a lot of obvious characters so that when it's revealed that it's Maude and Matthew, this mother-son duo that were the murderers, it's insane. And it's a, it's a twist. I didn't... It would have been better if it was like if the reasoning was better if there, if there were better justifications as to why they killed these people because each of them killed their father Maude killed her father matthew matthew killed his father you have to have a good reason if you're going to kill your father neither of these people were abusive in fact the king was a really good guy he he like I think they said the reason Maud ended up killing the king was because of Poppy, a girl she loved when she was literally twelve. But because the king faked Poppy's death, now she has this like vendetta against him. But then as it's revealed, it wasn't even the king that faked Poppy's death. It was Marjorie, Maud's mother, who faked Poppy's death. So she killed the wrong person, which means the king died for nothing. Does that? Ugh. I'm getting this is like review territory. I, I'm I'm still in a summary phase. I'm still in the summary phase. This is that's not even the end of it. That's not even the end of it. It's not the worst part of this book. So Maud and Matthew are the killers. Um but then um <laughs> I can't even like I don't even know how to start because like I said, he just like towards the end of the book, he just throws so much at you. I had to read some of the chapters over and over again to understand what the hell was happening. So Daisy and Speck basically come in and reveal that they were the killers. So <laughs> Okay, so let me give you let me tell you what happens. Let me give you the story. So you know how John had that little tablet that has heat signatures on it? And the heat signatures revealed that it was only the 10 members that were at the property, the family members, and him, John, the chef, and also Tony Speck, the security guard. But as it turns out, the red dots weren't heat signatures at all. They were trackers. So each of the family members wore this, like, family crest on their chest that was given to them by the king. Little 
Little did John know somebody had slipped one and that somebody was Tony Speck, the security guard. Somebody had slipped one into his pocket. So he didn't put two and two together and think that the, the crests were the trackers because he was like, oh, well, I don't have a tracker, but I see myself moving. But eventually he figures out that the crests are the trackers, which means there could be any number of people on the property. As long as you don't have a crest on you, you're not being tracked. So this whole time, they thought that the killer had to be somebody in the family when, in reality, the killer was none of them. Because although Matthew did kill Thomas, Thomas didn't die until much later. The initial investigation was on who murdered the king. So they were trying to figure out which family member murdered the king. It was none of them. It was none of them. Guess who it was? Guess. Guess who it was? It was Daisy and Speck who come in the last few chapters. They Speck has been missing for however many years. And he finally comes in and reveals that they were the killers. They were hiding throughout the house each freaking chapter. The ghosts that John thought that he was seeing. The person that was running at him that he initially thought was Thomas Crockley wasn't Thomas Crockley. It was Speck, the security guard, the man whose job, whose one job is to keep the king alive, killed the king. And let me tell you how they did it. Remember that puzzle, the interregnum puzzle at the beginning that was the king's gift? So first of all, we found out somewhere in the middle that it was Martin, the little boy, the 13-year-old boy who gave the king that gift. But the gift was suggested by Daisy, the king's secretary. And Daisy was the one who ordered the puzzle for Martin to give to the king. And basically, um, Daisy ordered it and like fucked with it so that it's not just like a regular puzzle box. Remember how like when the king solved the puzzle, he smelled like a Christmas dinner. It turns out it was like some type of poison that he smelled, disguised to smell as a Christmas dinner. So once he smelled the poison and that's when he started to die, <clears throat> but he didn't immediately die until he drank the whiskey. So everyone thought the whiskey was what poisoned him, but it turns out he was actually poisoned by the thing he loved so much, puzzles. And the people behind the puzzles were David and Speck. So it turns out that the king, um, it turns out the king, like, so throughout the show, the book, every, basically every other member of the royal family has been talking about, I hate being a royal family. I wish I was a normal person. And it turns out the king held those same sentiments. He didn't like being a member of the royal family. He thought he was in prison. He thought like he and his family had been condemned to being like prisoners so he wanted this to be their last christmas as royal people basically he wanted like the um the end of the monarchy so he wanted the royal family to be no longer and he wanted them to just live as regular people and so obviously daisy speck who works for the british government and is the king's secretary but her primary job is to work for the for the british government she obviously, and also the other government pe people, couldn't have the king being like, forget the monarchy, we're commoners now. 
So, yeah, that's why they killed King, because he wanted to be normal. They couldn't have just, like, blackmailed him. They couldn't have just, like, sent him away. They couldn't have faked his death. No, they literally killed him um, because he wanted to be normal. So poor King Eric. And so once all that's revealed, and then even Maude was like, but I poisoned his whiskey. They're like, it wasn't real poison, you idiot. So <laughs> now they're all like, they're like, okay, well, we're going to turn you guys in. And they're like, um, you guys all literally just confessed to murder. Like almost every single one of you confessed to murder. And if not a murder, some sort of crime. <laughs> so Daisy and Speck are like, unless you want to spend the rest of your life in prison, you're going to go along with everything we say. And then Matthew, his dumb self, he's like, yes, I do want to spend the rest of my life in prison because it's better than being a prince. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, Matthew, you literally killed your father. Like, you stabbed him in the back. I don't think, like, these people are obviously very naive. So they're like, even when Maude, after she killed, she thought she killed her dad, she, like, started crying, genuinely crying. And she was, like, she was also one of John's biggest supporters. Because a part of her was, like, I think she said she didn't see John as competition and as capable of figuring out that she was a murderer. But I also think a part of her was a little bit naive and, like, a little bit ignorant as to what she'd actually done. They don't really see death as death. They live in these, like, privileged bubbles where they can easily kill their fathers and just go on about their lives and then have the audacity to say something like, send me to prison. I don't care. It's better than this hell. Okay. So, anyway, David, Daisy and Speck are like, we're not going to do that. Um... You guys are going to go back to living as you were. We're going to say the king died of natural causes. And they basically threatened the royal family into choosing between John or themselves because John is just a commoner. So even though the royal family can all like they can be put back into the spotlight, they can't have John going on about his life. So they want to kill John. And at this point, little Martin has he took Spock's gun, which Spock is described as this like super big guy, this super big intimidating guy. And this little 13-year-old boy was able to get the gun away from him somehow. <laughs> so, basically, um, they, uh, Martin is pointing the gun at, at Speck, but they're like, you need to kill John or else we're going to kill your entire family. And so, obviously, like, the royal family choose themselves, even though, like, moments earlier they'd been talking about, we don't want this life anymore, we're going to protect you, John. But as soon as it comes down to it, they choose themselves over the commoner, which obviously is, like, realistic. Like, I think, I mean, they wouldn't even be talking about being commoners in the first place, but it is realistic to say, like, oh, they talked about being commoners, but when it comes time to put, you know, to put their money where their mouth is, obviously they're going to choose themselves every time. So little Martin ends up shooting John and... Um, but he shoots John specifically in a place where the bullet can pass through without immediately killing him. Because earlier in the story, Martin had, yeah, little Martin had shared a fun fact. Like, hey, did you know if you shoot someone in a specific place, you don't kill them right away? And so he was somehow able to figure out where that specific place was and able to accomplish it at the age of 13. Um, and the book ends with the royal family going back to normal, living their lives. Ma Mar Matthew is promoted to king, so he's now the new king. 
um, Martin is like super mad at his whole family. And their excuse for Thomas Crockley's death is that he's not actually dead. He's just laying low. You don't think people are going to get concerned? Because the, the end of the book takes place a year later. You mean to tell me he's been laying low for a year? Not one person has seen him? He's been laying low for a year? He's the princess's husband? He is the king's father? And he's been laying low for a year? Come on. It's just not realistic. That's my whole thing with the book. Like, I know you're supposed to suspend your belief. Like, you know, not take everything so serious when you're reading these type of things. But I feel like there's just too many things that are so out there. It makes the whole book feel a little bit bad. <laughs> um, but anyway, John didn't die. He somehow lived. And he somehow was able to get footage of the castle because the castle had hidden cameras everywhere. So he was able to somehow get a hold of all that footage and give it to the monarch. Remember that television show based on the royal family? So he, instead of giving it to the police, giving it to whatever, whatever like SEAL Team 6, whatever the, the British got going on over there, he gives it to the television show called The Monarch to turn into a show. Um, and that's, yeah, basically how it ends. It literally ends with the guy, like the producer of the show, getting the, the package from John. Um, by the way, John is now a terrorist. <laughs> like the whole country is looking for him. And he's like, um, I think they gave him like order. I forgot what the order number was, but it was like shoot to kill. So like it's not even just arrest him. Like as soon as you see him, just shoot him dead. <laughs> And he, this little 77-year-old man, who has cancer, by the way, it was revealed that he's got cancer. The 77-year-old man with cancer that was shot by a 13-year-old boy somehow survived and is on the run from the British monarchy and the British government. And yeah, that's how it ends. You don't know what happens to any of the characters after that. That's how it ends. You don't know if John lived, died. Like, once he delivered that information, you don't know what happened to him. And if that summary was confusing and all over the place, I assure you, that's because the book was. So, like, let's finally get into the review portion. I've definitely been dabbling in review territory, but let's actually get into review territory right now. So, there isn't, there's not going to be a script for this portion. Believe it or not, everything that I was just saying was, I was reading it off my computer. <laughs> so, like, even though it was super messy, like, I mean, I was throwing in a little bit of stuff here and there. But this portion doesn't have a script, so yeah, if you thought the initial part of this was messy, you, you know, it's going to get worse. But anyway, this part is going to be a lot messier, obviously. You're going to get my raw and unfiltered opinions um, before I go into my review of the story itself, which I feel like you've heard a lot of already, especially at the end of the book. I do want to talk about the characters, my opinions on each of the characters. Um, we're going to go in the order that they were introduced in the beginning. Because at first you learned like who each person was. But now you're going to hear my actual thoughts on them. So, first, first. Keen Eric. Um, Keen Eric. Although he was described as a good guy. He was supposed to be like this good Keen. This person that wanted to like get rid of the the monarchy and like wanted to wanted to force his family to live a regular life 
<laughs> I did not like him. I didn't like him at all. Um, I didn't think he was that. I didn't really care when he died. I mean, I cared a little bit, but I wasn't really like, oh, I was just like, finally, we can get this shit started. But so, um, Eric wanted to abolish the monarchy. Unrealistic. I feel like it was a good, it's a good plot. It's a good sentiment. Like this king wants to abolish the monarchy. So the British government kills him. Like, I think that's a really good, like, blurb. It's a really good start. I feel like the way it was played out, though, didn't really make any sense. Like, this guy wanted to abolish the monarchy when he was, like, on his deathbed. Like, he was 77 years old. And even though he was in perfect health, you've lived your life. You've lived your entire life as king. Of course you want to abolish the monarchy now. Like, you have nothing to gain from it anymore. So I feel like it wasn't really that... It wasn't really that much of, like, a, a statement to say that he wanted to get rid of the reign of the Windsors. Um, and I understand books aren't meant to be realistic, which is why I did say that I like that point. Because in reality, let's be real, like, King Charles, Prince William, they're not going to give up their their royalty. Prince Harry did. I mean, he still goes by Prince Harry, but he basically gave up royalty for Meghan. So, I mean, I guess maybe it's a little bit realistic. But I just don't think the king is somebody that would do something like that. Especially a king who's lived his whole life as king. Like, of course, you want to get rid of the monarchy now. So you can go out like a, like, like a king. Go out like a king. Like, go out. Um, like, yeah, the last thing he did was get rid of the monarchy. But, like, he lived his whole life as a king. Of course he wants to get rid of the monarchy. He's not going to benefit from it anymore. Another thing I didn't like about King Eric is his supposed close friend john the chef um so him and john are described as being close friends and he confides in john a lot but john also talks about how poor he is throughout this entire book and it's like your close friend is the king why are you poor so i hold that against eric because if you see this guy as somebody that you like he's literally the royal chef why is he in poverty that doesn't make any sense to me. Pay him more. Raise his salary. Make him a royal. Give him a title. Something. You can get rid of the monarchy, but you can't give your close friend slash royal chef a little bit more money. Like, I don't, I didn't, I didn't, I don't know. But, um, also one final thing I'll say about Eric is I thought his death was like a suicide at first. I thought it was going to be like, oh, he's tired of his family so he wants to like fake his death to see how they all react after he dies i really thought that's where it was going because at one point like his body is in a completely other room from where the other characters are so and then when john sees like the person that's running all over the house that's not on the like little blinker i was like is that the king the king's still alive right like he faked his death to see how people will react but no, it wasn't. And because it wasn't, I thought that Eric was a little stupid because I thought he should be smarter than that. Um, you know, you're keen. You've been keen for since you were 10, literally. You should know by now people are going to try to kill you. You should get the upper hand, try to kill yourself first. Like, wasn't it Kim Jong-un who did that, faked his death to see how people would react? That's a keen. That's a keen. He got his shit done. Prince King Eric did not. But 
let's move on. Marjorie, the king's wife, the princess royal. Um, she's an alcoholic racist. I thought she was probably she and David. I thought were the most realistic characters because you tell me you're writing a story about this the British royal family. Yeah, they're gonna be racist. They're gonna be rude people. So I thought Marjorie's character was really realistic. The idea of an alcoholic 77-year-old woman was a little bit funny to me, but it did serve for some, like, really refreshing humor. Um, so I'm not going to say I liked her character, but I did, I did think it was the most realistic. It was definitely the most realistic character to read about. Um, there isn't really much to say about her other than the fact that... Um, so, like, the thing about her not being queen... The reason the king didn't want her to be queen and instead named her Princess Royal for her entire life is because, so the king was never able to have children. Um, so the two daughters, the twin daughters, were not actually the king's. They were Prince David's. So um, Marjorie and David have been, like, having an affair throughout their entire life, basically, which was really obvious in the book i thought it was so obvious they wouldn't really like make that a point but yeah it was obvious they were having an affair throughout the entire story so the king basically like takes it out on marjorie and doesn't make her queen so she remains a princess for her entire life which i mean i don't know not really that bad of a situation you're still married to the king you're still like you still have a life more privileged than any of us will ever know so I don't really feel for her that she was never dubbed queen. You're still a racist, ma'am. You're still an, a, a bad person. Who cares? Get over it. Anyway, next up, Prince David, the prince's brother. He's definitely, like, in this universe, he's definitely a Prince Andrew type. They shove that down your throats. This guy is not only racist... He's also an assaulter. He's definitely a physical assaulter, but like I said, it's implied that he's probably also a sexual assaulter. He was exiled to New Zealand because of his assaults, but the king brought him back for this one, his last Christmas dinner, because the king was going to like basically exile him to New Zealand forever. Like instead of holding him accountable for his actions, they're just going to like send him off to another country. Where he'll, he's probably just going to continue assaulting more people in that country. Like, who does it benefit sending him to New Zealand? Like, that just... Dude, I don't know how the royal family doesn't see that, how that makes them worse. You're not punishing him. You're sending him to a new country where he can continue his shenanigans. Also, the guy is literally, like, 70 years old. <laughs> anyway, um, I definitely thought he was a murderer at first, but it was way too obvious. Way too obvious. So I'm glad they didn't make him the murderer. But also, you know, sometimes a little bit obvious doesn't mean it's bad. Like, look at Glass Onion. Like, the, the murderer was, like, literally right in your face, but then the reveal was excellent. Excellent. Sometimes simpl simplicity is fine as long as it's well done. In this case, I feel like they tried to do the opposite of simplicity, and it was not as well done. You know, it wasn't... I would have been fine with David being the murderer if it was well done. But David wasn't even the murderer. It was like all these other people. 
that weren't even introduced, which I'm going to get into. But anyway, let's move on to the next character. Emmeline, the eldest twin. Let's him is perfect. She didn't really make any sort of lasting impression on me. I thought she was going to have like a much more grand role. She's first in line for the throne, but she's not power hungry. Her boyfriend wasn't invited to Christmas dinner. You would think that would make her a little bit more upset. I definitely suspected her at first, but her actions were just so confusing that I didn't really know what to think. That's what it is with the, with this book. There was like no consistency with the characters. So it was really hard to like make any guesses yourself. And I understand that the author was trying to like play games and fool you. But there's a good way to do that. And then there's like a confusing way to do that. And he definitely chose the confusing route. So I don't think Emmeline was a favorite of mine. I suspected her. Again, I would have liked if she was revealed to be the murderer because simplicity is fine if it's done well. Not only was Emmeline not revealed to be any of the murderers, she barely had anything important to do in the story. She was so forgettable. That's probably why people like your younger sister better. You're boring. Anyway, let's move on to the younger sister. She's got a husband and two sons. Um, the LGBT LGBTQ icon of the story she fell in love with a girl named Poppy when she was 12, and the reason she wanted to kill her dad was because of Poppy. Um, I didn't really like that. I didn't, I mean, it's a good sentiment. Again, this guy has, like, some great ideas, but he doesn't execute them well, is my issue. Because Poppy was a girl that Maud kissed once when she was 12 years old, and then from that point on, was just like so obsessed with this idea of this young girl to the point where she's literally 40 years old and she kills her father because of it. Like, I I don't know. I don't really like, um, it, it didn't really make all that sense to me. Especially since like she literally has her own husband. She's got two kids now. You don't have to kill your father. Just abandon your family, you know? I don't think these motives are really as good as they could have been, you know? I think if Poppy had actually died, that would have been an excellent motive for Maud to kill her father. But Poppy didn't die, and Maud knows this. Maud literally spoke to Poppy. You know she's alive. You could have spoke to your father about it and found out that it wasn't even your father who sent Poppy away. It was your mother. I would have been fine if you killed your mother. She was terrible. Anyway, um, that's Maud. Now let's go to Matthew. Um, actually, before we go to Matthew, let's do Thomas Crockley. Not really much to say about Thomas Crockley. He was a guy. He was around. He lived. He died. He called people old boy. He gave a little bit of CPR. And he took a nap. I respect it. Um, I'm sad that he died. Actually, I was. I thought he was a little bit funny. <laughs> Hold on. There's a... F okay, so I'll read it later, but one of my favorite quotes was actually from um, Thomas. I don't really have a lot to say about him, so let's move on. Matthew. New Keen at the end of the story. So I really didn't like Matthew. I feel like they were trying to make you like Matthew. I really didn't like Matthew. He was giving fake woke. He was like, yes, I respect this black commoner. I trust you. And then in the end, he basically just like, oh, yeah, no, 
I, I come first. I didn't trust him, and I was right not to trust him because he basically, like, he was complicit in the, the killing of John. Well, not killing because John survived, but the theoretical killing of John. Um, and then he ended up king in the end, so didn't like that. You guys wanted to abolish the monarchy, and now you're literally the monarchy. Um, let's move on to Martin. He's a good enough kid, not much to say. What I will say, though, is in the end, so Martin is the one that shoots John, and he shoots him so that, like, he gets him in a place that won't kill him. I know he's, like, a royal family. He's got, like, this prestigious education. How did he know where to shoot? I didn't like that. How did he know where to shoot? He did it so well. How did he get the gun out of Tori? Tori. <laughs> How did he get the gun out of Tony Speck's hand? He's 13. Speck is like this literally trained combat soldier. I don't get it. No. No. Let's move on to my favorite character, John Elaine, the only black character in the story, the 77-year-old black man, I felt so sorry for him. This family put him through hell, but also it was his fault. He's too dedicated. Um, And one thing I really didn't like is this is a white author writing about this black, well, he's biracial, but writing about this black chef. And I didn't like some of the quotes that were included. Um, I didn't like some of the insinuations. John was a fine enough character, but it was definitely giving coon. Um, if you don't know what a coon is, basically like a black man that's like way too dedicated to white people. And that's literally what John was. Why are you so dedicated to this royal family that you're literally willing to die for them? I don't get it. He literally, he literally lived and died for the king. I didn't like that. Um, also, it was definitely giving homosexuality, him and the king. Their friendship was bordering on romantic at times, which I was rooting for. I really wanted them to be, like, explicit. Like, I always loved you, John. I always loved you, King Eric. But unfortunately, we didn't get that. It's giving homophobic, but, you know, it's fine. But just know that we are in a 21st century Sometimes gay people will exist, and it's okay to acknowledge that. So just wanted to get that out the way. Now let's move on to Daisy. Hated her. Character didn't make sense. My thing about murder mysteries, and I think it's a lot of people's thing too, <laughs> but if you're going to have a murder mystery, it's like a game, you know? All the players have to be introduced at the beginning of the game, like when you're watching basketball or football, regardless of who's on the court or the field, you see and you get introduced to all of the players. That's how it should be in a murder mystery. You need to be introduced to all of the players, or if not all of the players, at the very least, all of the suspects. Because not only was this character introduced in the middle of nowhere, she turned out to be this big bad this big bad guy. She was the killer. She was the murderer. How it's not fair to the audience that the murder suspect is literally somebody that you've never had the chance to meet before. Because this whole time we're playing this game, we're we're being given these clues and the clues ultimately amount to nothing because 
there's this whole entire person that we haven't met yet and who plays a major role in this story. So I think it's a little bit unfair to the audience and even unfair to the characters that Daisy wasn't immediately introduced. I don't think that was a smart choice. I think it was poor writing. I think um, Daisy herself as a character, obviously she was supposed to be a bad person, but there were just no redeeming qualities about her at all. She was, I mean, it. I just didn't like her. Like I said, I would have preferred Emmeline or David being the killer because as obvious as it would have been, it would have been good. It would have been better than this whole new person we didn't even know about. Anyway, the last remaining character is Tony Speck, the security guard. He's irrelevant. He's a loser. Nothing to say about him. Let's move on. Now let's review the actual story. Um, I've talked about it enough. So I'm just going to like fast forward through bullet points, some of the things I liked and didn't like before I give my official like rating and recommendation. So some of the things that I liked, the writing style was good. It was simple enough. It was easy to read. Like I said, I read this book in one day. So obviously it's not like very difficult. And that's really what I want in a murder mystery. I want simplicity. You know, it doesn't have to be like a Shakespearean novel. It just has to be good enough to keep me entertained and to keep me flipping the page. Um, so the first half of this definitely accomplished that. It definitely kept me reading because I wanted to know who did it. But of course, that's because I thought we had all the characters already. So I'm flipping through these pages and I'm playing along with the game. And all of a sudden, you bring in this whole new guy who I haven't met yet. But I'm sorry, I keep... So these are things I like, so I'm going to stick on the things that I like. Um, but yeah, I like the writing style. I thought it was okay. And then um, this book is about the British royal family, and it is written by a British author. So when you're reading it, it definitely screams British to you. And if you're the kind of person who likes to play around with, like, you know, who like, like if you watch Love Island and you pretend to talk like one of the islanders, this is definitely the book for you because you can just pretend you're British and you can read it with a British accent and it's super fun. And that's really all you want in like a murder mystery, right? You just want fun, you want entertainment. So I like that. Um, Like I said, the first half and maybe even the first two thirds were good. I thought it was like, it was a really good, nice um, road that we were on. I like that each chapter had a title. I think that's that's something that more authors need to be doing. I like fun little titles. I like knowing what's about to happen. I, it's like a little summarization of what's going to happen in that chapter. And I think more people need to be doing that. And I think they need to be doing it in a funny way. A lot of these chapters were funny. I liked it. Um, and another thing, um, in terms, speaking of like the title cards, one of my favorite titles was The Devil's Daughter. That's the chapter where it was revealed that the twins were actually not the king's children, but David's children. So, um, and it's called the devil's daughter because there's this line that like subtly refers to David as a devil. And so when he starts strangling his daughter, like that's, you know, it's, I thought it was just really good. Like it was like a subtle delivery. Like David is the devil and these are his daughters. I thought it was a nice title card. I thought it was fun. Again, it's all I want in a murder mystery. I just want fun. Um, and then, um, also on the whole, like, 
the, the the twins being David's kids thing, looking back, it was a fairly obvious twist. But I think I was so bent on believing that the twins were adopted. I didn't want to believe anything else because it was fairly obvious that the twins were not the Keens. Like I thought that was like they were giving a lot of hints towards that. But I was like, oh, they're adopted or like the the wife cheated or something. So like adoption was the first thing in my mind. And I didn't want to let go of that, even though it was becoming more and more obvious that David was a father. A part of me was like, nah. And then when it was revealed, I was like, oh, obviously. So, um, but yeah, The Devil's Daughter was my favorite title. It wasn't my favorite chapter, but it was my favorite title card. Um, I also really liked a lot of the humor. <laughs> um, it was a really funny book. And, um, it wasn't like, it wasn't laugh out loud funny a lot of the times. It was more like, <laughs> that was funny. But there were definitely a few times that really actually made me laugh out loud. Um, and one time was like immediately after the king died when they were like, does anybody know CPR? And then um, Maude was like, my husband knows CPR, but Ma obviously Thomas is known to be a liar. <laughs> so Maude is like, please don't tell me this is one of those things you lied about. And so David, I'll read it to you. Crockley was hesitant, but the accusation fueled him. Now look here, I was a badger, but that was back in the day. Protocols have changed since then. If I do something wrong, I could really hurt the old boy. Thomas, he is bloody dead. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. It's like, I don't want to give him CPR because I could really hurt the old boy. Um, He's literally dead and foaming at the mouth. <laughs> I don't think he could be more hurt than this. So I thought that was really funny and I enjoyed reading that. I thought it was like a nice little laugh, laughter moment. Um, And then another thing that I really liked was something that was said at the end, which is, King is just a title. Those who put you on the throne have all the power. I thought that was a nice line. And it definitely, again, to talk about like the plot, like the like a, like a little concise summary of this, this book was supposed to be about like the king wants to abolish the monarchy so the British government kills him. That itself is a really good story. It's so interesting. And then coupled with this line, King is just a title. Those who put you on the throne have all the power. It's so good, right? Like, the king thinks he has the power to abolish the monarchy, when in reality, he doesn't. And in fact, the British government can kill him for even thinking that. Like, it's such a good concept. I just wish the execution was as powerful as the concept idea. Um, and so that kind of, like, takes us to what I disliked about the book, which is a much longer list. Than what i liked about the book um so i'm just gonna run through them quick i disliked marjorie being princess royal and not queen because the kids aren't the kings i didn't think that made enough sense i don't have enough knowledge on how the royal family works to like say it about that but i wish he would have explained it more at least but just the way it was given to us I mean, they made such a big deal of her being a princess royal and not queen. And I thought it was for, like, this big, serious reason. She cheated. Who hasn't? Um, and something else I disliked. The ending. I've talked about this. <laughs> the ending was incredibly rushed and didn't feel fleshed out. You know, as a writer myself, I like to have outlines ready whenever I'm writing, like, complex stories. Because you can take the chapters one at a time. But the overall story, you need to know where you're going. 
And to me, it felt like he did it. It felt like he was just writing. And maybe he had like a, like a loose idea of where he was going. But it definitely wasn't like fleshed out. It wasn't good enough to like land. It wasn't good enough to land it, you know? Um, it was a lot happening at the end. It was so much happening. Like I said, I really liked the first two thirds of this book. But the last third was just a lot happening. I don't like how Daisy was the main bad guy in the end, as if she had been there from the beginning. The actual murder weapon, the puzzle game, that was a nice twist. But it wasn't nice that the culprits were Daisy and Speck. It doesn't, you know, they should have been there from the beginning. Speck was there from the beginning. If Speck alone had been the killer, fine. Doesn't really make all that much sense. But it's better than it being Daisy, who was a character we literally didn't meet until, like, after the king had died. Also, like, in terms of spec, again, what was his motivation? Because he helped Daisy. And I get that the government has a lot more power than the monarch monarchy. So maybe, like, they threatened him or he works for the government and not the monarchy. So even though he has to protect the royal family, he protects them from everything but the government. They should have explained that if that was the case, but it didn't really seem like it was. Because this whole book, Speck is talking about, I have to protect the king. I have to protect the king. And then in the end, he's like, yeah, I killed the king. Okay. If you, I'm scratching my head right now because it's like, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, other things I didn't like. John's blind devotion to the family. Um, so, one thing I did like that I didn't mention in my liked list is so like you know how in the tablet you have the red dots that was supposedly the heat signatures but turned out to be the trackers so one thing i liked was when john discovers the family crest at first he's like oh the king gave it to me he thinks i'm a member of the family and it's like this really nice moment and then he realizes oh no the king didn't give this to me this is a tracker and this is actually like a really bad thing so he throws out the family crest and i thought it was like a super symbolic and meaningful moment like he spent this entire book literally running all over the place killing himself for this family and in the end he's like no it's not worth it and he throws it out i thought it was nice i thought it was like it would have been a nice satisfying ending like you know what I'm going to leave you guys to your shenanigans. It's not worth it. I'm going to go home and I'm going to have my first meal of the day and I'm going to forget about you guys. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He literally, up until the moment the book ends, he is living for this family. And I feel like it's implied that he probably dies like outside the story because he does have cancer. He was shot. The odds of surviving that, very slim. So, like, most likely he did die. So, he lived to his final moments just, like, living for this family. And I didn't like that. Especially him being a black man. And he comes from Barbados, a country colonized by the UK. That's, that's really, like, really bad. <laughs> like, this is a white author talking about, like, a, a guy from a colonized country being so completely, blindly devoted to this white, rich racist royal family that's not a good thing and i wish he was at least pointed out that it wasn't a good thing but the whole time the family like meant him you're so good for loving us and then they don't pay him the same respect i didn't really like that i didn't like it at all um i thought it was very insensitive actually um that this guy from barbados was um so devoted to the family 
And another thing I didn't like is that his mother, who was black, was addicted to drugs and died of drug overdose. Um, and there was this really, there was this really funny part, not funny, haha, but funny, weird, where he talks about like Russian nesting dolls. And he talks about how he actually saw a Russian nesting doll one day that his mom had. And so he's getting to the bottom of these nesting dolls, getting to the bottom of them. And he thinks it's going to be like a fun little note or like a tiny little nesting doll. But no, it's a bag of heroin because, of course, the black woman keeps heroin in her Russian nesting dolls. I thought that was so funny. Again, not funny, haha, but funny, what the fuck? (laughs) But overall, very frustrating ending. Things kept happening. You didn't have time to digest the murders. The justifications, the motivations made very little sense. The second murder, Matthew killing his father, felt like it was included just to include it. Because why did he kill his dad? Tell me, why did he kill his dad? Just like for another shock value? Well, I was certainly shocked, not in a good way. Um, Royals versus government. A nice sentiment, not as fleshed out. Again, like, the government, like, killing the king because he was like, I'm tired of this, Grandpa. And they're like, that's too damn bad. Um, nice sentiment, not as fleshed out. Um, and then one more thing. I did not like the title of the book. Yes, that is the reason I picked it up. I started this podcast talking about the reason I picked up this murder mystery. is because it said murder on the cover. But having read it, a murder at Balmoral feels boring especially knowing how bad the book ends it's like okay well the title you know he didn't really put that much thought into the title what would have been an exceptional title interregnum interregnum was the puzzle that killed the king interregnum literally means between rain the context of this book takes place interregnum it takes place after the king has died before a new king or queen can take position the entire book is between reign the puzzle that killed the king was called interregnum why would you not name the book such a fantastic title you had it you had it chris mcgeorge you had it it was so so good i would have forgiven so much i would have maybe forgiven the daisy thing if you named this book interregnum oh my god it's actually upsetting me that this book is called a murder at ball moral interregnum interregnum by chris mcgeorge interregnum so good so 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 good Ugh, but whatever. I don't even know if interregnum is a real word, but that would have intrigued you, right? Like, if you see a book title called Interregnum, even if you don't read it, at the very least, you're going to want to look it up. And if you find out it's not, like, a real word, you're like, hmm, I wonder what it means then. Um, And so you, like, read the book to find out what it means. And then you find out, and it's like, oh, it's because we're between the rain. Oh, my God. So good. Chris McGeorge, you flopped. Flopped. Overall... I rate this book a 7 out of 10 or 3 out of 5, which I think is a perfectly fine and acceptable score for a murder mystery. It doesn't need to be anything more than entertaining. And I was definitely entertained. I was frustrated towards the end, but honestly, after having said everything I've said in this hour and a half, 
a good book is something that evokes emotion. And my emotions were certainly, like, they jumped out. A lot of frustration, a lot of anger, a lot of confusion, but emotions nonetheless. Um, so I'm not going to say I love this book because it brought out those emotions, but it definitely made me feel, which is always a good thing. You know, we need to be reminded that we're human. We have emotions. So thank you, Mr. McGeorge. I appreciate that for bringing out all these emotions in me. And again, I was definitely entertained. Like there was a lot happening. I wish the ending was as cohesive as the beginning. But in the end, Mr. McGeorge definitely wrote a murder mystery. You know, he, he wrote a book and he got that book published. So, you know, props to him. Props to him. Mr. McGeorge, you wrote a book. You wrote a book and it was a murder. It was a mystery. It was a murder mystery. You did it. Congratulations. Now, would I recommend this book? I think I would. I would. I've said a lot of bad things about this book, but I would read it. However, I would recommend it with some asterisks. It's a fun, entertaining story, but there are some racist themes, as I mentioned. I'm not sure if it was supposed to be completely intentional by the author, although I don't think every racist theme was intentional. Like, the, the heroine mom, I think, was a little bit too insensitive. The Barbados black man devoted to the rich white family. Even if it was intentional, I don't think it's the place of a white man to make a story like that, you know? Um, so there's definitely a lot of themes. So I would recommend this book to somebody because it is a murder mystery. And it is like, you know, it does evoke emotion in you. But, you know, you're just going to have to let that person know when you're recommending the story. You're going to run across some really weird stuff. Um, overall, I do think it's an okay book. Not really spectacular, but something that will definitely get you excited during certain parts. And the writing was good. I liked his writing style. I liked the sense of humor. So, yes, 7 out of 10 or 3 out of 5 for those who use that scale. I know 7 out of 10 will translate to a 3.5 out of 5, but I think 3 is pretty sufficient. I don't want to give that half. I don't think it's, it's, I don't think he deserves a half point. Sorry, Mr. McGeorge. Maybe if you named the book Interregnum, you would have got that half, but you only get a 3 out of 5. I hope you're okay with that. Um, so thank you so much if you took the time to listen to this book review. It was definitely all over the place um, because I was just rambling, which, again, the reason I started this podcast is because I always have a lot of thoughts after I finish a piece of media, and I can't always talk about it with my friends, especially because I have so many thoughts. I don't want to bother them with everything I have to say. Um, this was the very first time I did this, so of course it's going to be a little bit sloppy. This was also the very first book I finished this year. Props for me. Props for me. My first book of 2023 and also my first podcast that I finished this year by myself ever. And my first podcast of 2023. Yay. I'm very proud of myself. Um, And I will definitely try my hardest to continue. Although, like I said, I'm in law school. And for those of you not in law school... <laughs> It's a pretty demanding place to be. Like, they ask a lot of you. So, like, you know, I'm not going to be posting, like, every week, maybe even every month. But um, I definitely do want to keep making reviews of the books that I read. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to me ramble and rant. 
I enjoy doing this. I love rambling and ranting. Um, this was read the book. Read the book. Never take anyone's opinions as fact, as like the word of God. I have my opinions. People have their opinions. Some things I say were definitely like objective truths, like the the thing with Barbados. Um, Barbados was a colonized country, so a lot of problematic um themes there. But everything else outside of that, read the book, make opinions for yourself. And I do recommend the book at the end of the day. So take that away from all of this. If you're gonna take anything away from this, know that this book is a recommend. Not a strong recommend, but like a you know, if you have the time, read it. Um, but yeah, I don't really have anything else to say. Um, thank you so much. Have a blessed day. <laughs>